Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, I'm going to feature some of the most interesting and original moments from my recent reporting on Full Measure as we get ready to close out the season. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This is going to be fun. I can't believe we're at the end of our sixth season, our sixth full year of full measure. Seems like just yesterday I left CBS News. I think we've done everything we've set out to do in terms of original off-narrative reporting, and that mission has become more important than ever as these years have gone by. I hope you will catch our end-of-season wrap-up on Full Measure. It seems to be a viewer favorite when we do these. It'll be Sunday, June 6th. But on the podcast today, I'm going to do something we don't have time to do on the TV program, revisit more glimpses of some of my favorite reporting from this season. I think we were really on the cutting edge of some stories, such as the border crisis, but we also did a lot of original reporting on topics almost nobody else paid attention to, either because they're too busy covering the same three to four topics over and over again, or they just want to avoid, maybe even censor them. So first, I want to start with a little bit of a story that Scott Thuman did for me in Minneapolis after that community struggled with the death of black suspect George Floyd in police custody. They talked about defunding the police, and as some predicted, it really ended up hurting the community, especially the marginalized and minority community members more than others, according to what Scott found on his visit. We call the story Law and Disorder. Every weekend since May, Dustin Sanchez and his neighbors have blockaded their uptown neighborhood after sunset, shutting down and patrolling their own streets, communicating on walkie-talkies, sometimes armed, because those are the most dangerous hours. It is a risky routine. In late June, a shootout erupted around them. 11 people were hurt with close calls for his crew. It happened about 12.30, and you just hear a pop, 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 and then pop, 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 pop. The bullets are whizzing by you. Yeah, they hit some windows there. They hit the movie theater. They hit the shoe store. You've they... never seen anything like this here? No, never. A few miles away, across town, Abdi Hassan and his neighbors are on watch and ready for anything. 270 sniper rifle. So you went and bought a shotgun? Yes. 
Abdi came from war-torn Somalia, where he'd seen warlords reign with violence. Here in Minneapolis, he has now seen his wife and children confronted at gunpoint. They pointed the gun at your kid. By the time I was coming down the stairs with the shotgun, I heard a shot. So now I'm thinking, who, 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 who got hurt? Is it my wife? Is it my kids? So by the time I came out of the door, the guy who shot the bullet went into my wife's car and tried to take her keys. Mm. And she got hold of his gun, his hand, and she was going like this and he let it go. It is not that police aren't around. They're just stretched thin. In the two months since Floyd's death, Minneapolis saw a 20% rise in violent crimes. There were twice as many murders in June as the year before. Businesses faced with riots and the risk of being looted or burned to the ground turned to hiring military contractors to defend their properties when the police couldn't. Okay, so this was Scott Thuman's reporting in Minneapolis shortly after George Floyd's death. Kind of chaotic in some neighborhoods, sadly so. And next in the story, you will hear from an African-American community member who, like others, told Scott they do not think that the police should be defunded. Maybe there should be some changes, they said, but they're the ones who end up getting hurt, they say, when these changes are made, even if the opposite was the intent. This is the reality. For the first time in, in my history of working in this community and living in this community, I am afraid. I am afraid. Kathy Spann leads a community council in North Minneapolis and agrees there needs to be massive reforms, but she is not okay with getting rid of the police, as some suggest. Our city council is talking about defunding and dismantling the police department, the only entity that I know right now that can keep me safe. You are not going to leave me unprotected in my house. And you gonna tell me that you gonna disband the Minneapolis Police Department and without a plan of action that says that this is what the alternative is. In Minneapolis, the question of what the new law and order will be is a frightening prospect. So Scott was really ahead on that reporting because as time went on after that report, more and more cities who were looking at alternatives to police and who were defunding the police, they were having similar reflections and similar repercussions in terms of increases in crime and community concern and outrage about those increases. Now for my story on the initial broadcast that we did on Full Measure this season in September, I chose to look at border coverage And, you know, I've been to the border maybe a dozen times for full measure. I'll be going back this summer to continue our reporting. And what I like to do is I go with no agenda whatsoever. I go and I just see what's going on. I ask the people who live there, the ranchers, Border Patrol agents, police officials, illegal immigrant advocates, everybody, and then just come back with whatever the story is. And boy, how things change from my first visit at the beginning of the season to the one that I made shortly after the new year. Because what I found initially was that things were apparently getting better. Listen. Despite the many challenges, we found that recent efforts to step up border enforcement may be having an impact in terms of human smuggling. Even before coronavirus, the number of people caught crossing illegally into the U.S. was shaping up to be substantially lower than last year. 
In fiscal year 2017, Customs and Border Protection reported more than 415,000 apprehensions. By 2019, that number had more than doubled to over 977,000, with all-time records set for number of non-Mexicans, family units, and unaccompanied children. But through August this year, with just one month left in the fiscal year, agents reported picking up fewer than 400,000 people. This spot on the beach where we are today became famous in November 2018 at the start of a big surge in illegal immigration. Illegal immigrants were shown on national TV climbing the border fence, sitting on it, even cutting a hole in it and crawling through. Once the hole was big enough, the migrants rushed in. It was happening all along the all along the border and our infrastructure and our agents did a, a great job under the circumstances that we were working on. Since then, the old wall has been replaced with a new barrier system that includes double fencing and there have been no masses of people climbing over or cutting through. Our traffic levels have greatly decreased. You know, the infrastructure that has been put in place uh, has worked for this particular area. So on that visit, by all accounts, things were getting better. Boy, how things changed in just a few months. Another subject that I've looked into over the years, and again last fall, was the legalization of marijuana. Many states, as you know, are being pressed to do this, lobbied to legalize marijuana. Many are doing this. I visited Colorado a few years ago and found some really important things, I think. Again, going with no agenda, just asking all sides what they had learned and what had happened. And even the marijuana advocates told me that things were not turning out the way they planned. So I visited California, which also fairly recently legalized marijuana to see how things were going there. And the story was surprisingly very much like the Denver, Colorado experience in terms of what had happened when marijuana was legalized, the disappointment, the things that didn't turn out the way they were supposed to. And it's interesting because as more and more states talk about legalizing marijuana, they don't seem to be looking to the experiences of these states. Colorado said that they hoped California would learn something from their experience, but looks like California followed pretty much the exact same path because those who are lobbying for legalization, I don't think they want the downside to be publicized. They just go and push the notion that there will be a lot more tax money and that this will uh, take the illegal market, sort of take that out of the mix. Well, that's not what turns out to happen, according to the experts on the ground. I'm going to begin this excerpt. I had gotten invited to attend a taste test of marijuana conducted by some bloggers who were doing, I think it was a live broadcast or live blog as they tasted different kinds of marijuana. And that's the music that you will hear. They were playing music there. California's Green Rush was supposed to begin in January 2018 when it first became legal to buy and use recreational pot. All right, Bonnie, 159 for you. The medical marijuana and illegal markets, which had operated with very little oversight, were supposed to come into the fold and generate major cash revenue. Officials said legal pot would ultimately generate a billion dollars a year in taxes for the financially troubled state, 
which now has about a half trillion dollars in state and local debt, give or take. But the actual results are proving to be a major bummer. Well, I'm less than one-tenth of one percent profit margin currently, and I don't know any business that stays in business for those thin of margins. Eleven states, most recently Illinois, have legalized recreational marijuana. Many report a simultaneous boom in the black market. It's estimated 75% of Californians are buying pot illegally, and 90% of the weed sold in 2018 in Massachusetts was illegal, as were more than half of sales in Oregon and Washington state. To understand why underground sales are thriving in states where pot is perfectly legal, just follow the money. If you're a cultivator, you pay a tax. When you're a manufacturer, you pay a tax. And then once it gets to a distributor, you pay a tax. Then once it gets to the retailer, the retailer pays a tax. Then the state takes its excise tax, which is based on gross receipts. Then you have like individual gross receipts tax at the city level. In California, those on the growing and production side get taxed $1.35 for each ounce of fresh cannabis plants, $2.87 per ounce for leaves, and $9.65 per ounce of dried cannabis flowers. When it's ready to be sold to customers, add on a 15% state excise tax, a 7.25% state sales tax, and local sales taxes that can exceed 10%. So after all is said and done, as, an, as a business owner, um, the final price of the product, about 58 to 60% of that price is taxes. So you can see with all of that taxation, it becomes so much cheaper to continue to buy your pot illegally. So therefore, the boom, the simultaneous boom in the black market, not what was advertised or expected with the legalization of marijuana. There was also one other unintended consequence I learned in California when I covered this story, and it was the supposed discriminatory results of legalized marijuana with African-Americans not benefiting as much as others. Take a listen to, well, I'm starting with one African-American lawmaker who's focusing on this topic. As we all know, prior to the legalization, you've talked about the folks who were arrested the most. It was black and brown individuals. California State Senator Stephen Bradford is among those who believe minorities should benefit more from legal pot. 70% of all arrests for possession or sale of marijuana was black and brown people. Now, on the reverse, less than 10% of people of color have a license for legalized marijuana. So that should be of a great concern to all of us here. So he's working on making or giving better access to minority business owners who want to be in the legal marijuana market in California. So interesting. I tackled another super interesting topic that it seems like a lot in the media were staying away from. And the main reason I think they were is because it doesn't fit neatly into the expected boxes. And I'm talking about transgender athletes. The notion that in some places, there are boys who are on the boys sports team in high school who are allowed to switch overnight if they wish to the girls team and compete on girls teams. And this is actually happening, happened in Connecticut and became the impetus for a lawsuit. And what about it doesn't fit neatly into a box? Well, a lot of people who support the rights of transgender athletes, a lot of people who support the rights of transgenders in general, do not think that those born as boys should be allowed to compete on the girls' teams. 
This includes feminists who disagree with the notion. So it puts feminists in the position, in this instance, of being on the same side as some conservative activists. And that's not a comfortable place for some people. But listen to a little bit of our story from Connecticut. We were there last February when the high school athletes lined up in New Haven, Connecticut for the 55-meter dash at the state track and field championships. Chelsea Mitchell, the blonde with a red shirt in the middle, was positioned next to Terry Miller, orange top, blue shorts, who ran on the boys' team until about three years ago. Same with Andrea Yearwood. In 2018, months after both athletes switched over from the boys' team, they dominated the girls' state championships, placing first and second. Together, they've won 15 state championship races since 2017. Here, they're speaking to ABC. At what point do you decide, actually, it's more appropriate for me to be on the girls' team and competing with other girls? I decided that the summer before ninth grade. But what some see as an important step forward for transgender athletes, others see as infringing upon the rights of non-transgender girls. Have all of you lost races and competitions to biological males? Yes, we all have. Okay. How many races? Too many to count. Chelsea Mitchell is one of the fastest sprinters in the country. She's shown here in 2018 losing the 55-meter dash to Miller in red on one side and Yearwood on the other. The next year, Mitchell again loses to Miller in orange and Yearwood to the left. It's been very unfair for me and the other girl competitors to race against them. I personally lost four state championships, two All-New England awards, and countless other um, opportunities because of it. Mitchell and two other athletes, Alana Smith and Selena Soule, have filed a federal lawsuit challenging the Connecticut policy that lets students switch from the boys' team to the girls' team without surgery or hormone treatments. Very tough questions. I also set out this season to figure out what happened after then-President Trump threatened to withhold funds from sanctuary cities and states, places that agreed to shield illegal immigrants, particularly those who had committed crimes on U.S. soil, but would not be deported or would be protected. This is something President Trump tried to change, but when it came to withholding federal funds, it turned out, as I learned, there's only sort of a small slice of federal money that could be withheld. And then the communities, cities, and states sued, in many instances, to try to keep that money from being withheld, so it kind of put the whole thing in limbo. As with a lot of Trump initiatives, the lawsuits tied things up into court. So listen to a little excerpt of this reporting that I did from California, which starts with a clip of President Trump at a rally talking about not wanting to reward sanctuary cities. I don't want to give sanctuary cities money. Michelle Steele is on the president's side. She's a first-generation legal immigrant from South Korea and chairman of the Board of Supervisors in Orange County, California. So it's very dangerous that, you know, when you cannot trace these people and they commit another crime and coming back, then public safety is in danger. And I raised the issue because government's first duty is public safety. In 2018, Orange County voted to take a position against California's sanctuary status. This is absolutely shameful. I oppose this resolution. 
lock them all up. Are we a nation of laws or we're not? If you, you vote no comments. on 14A, you are responsible for, you for endangering comments. human yeah. beings. All right. Uh, any opposed? All right. Seeing none, that passes with all members present. Can you guess what the impact might be if the Trump administration cuts off federal funds to California and cities and counties for reason that they are sanctuary cities, counties, and state? You know what? California has been always fighting Trump administration, you know, regarding the immigration issues. So it seems like it was, uh, you know, a year or two years ago that Trump administration said that we're going to cut off. But I don't think anything's been cut off until yet. So I don't know. We set out to find who has been cut off and how much money is at stake. The Department of Justice told us a lot of the public information we asked for is confidential or not being tracked. What we do know is the biggest pot of federal money involved is called Burn Justice Assistance Grants. About $250 million a year is divided among 900 cities, counties, and states. In 2017, the Trump administration imposed new conditions requiring that any place that takes the money cooperate with ICE. That forces sanctuary cities to give up the cash or change their ways. California gets the most money from the grant program, nearly $36 million over the past two years. That's on top of what its local governments get. Now the big question is whether the threat of losing millions of dollars in federal taxpayer money is changing minds here on the ground in the sanctuary state of California or its 20 sanctuary cities and counties. So I can kind of assume, and I'll follow up on this this summer, that with the Biden administration in charge, the Justice Department will not continue its fight to withhold money from sanctuary cities. A lot of these legal challenges went on long enough or were stalled long enough so that now the Trump administration is gone and the same policies won't be in effect. Stick with me after a short break. Adam Carolla and the media's big miss when it came to the 2020 election. We're back and I'm going to play a little bit of my interview with entertainer Adam Carolla. He was talking about his book about woke culture called I'm Your Emotional Support Animal. He's become a really interesting and important voice, I think, on what's gone wrong, not just in Hollywood, but really around the country in schools and universities and so on. But let's listen to a little bit of his interview. You'll read stuff in the book like it's in the book, which is we're going to cancel Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima, except for if that was written six months before they canceled Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima. So if you kind of have your ear to the ground and your antennas facing true north, you'll start feeling and hearing things happening before they, they happen. And that's, that's kind of my, that's what's in the book. What is the value of knowing it if you can't, if you disagree with it, stop it or change the course of it? I would say take something like diversifying your portfolio. And I'm not talking about your stocks and bonds, but I understood which way the wind was blowing in Hollywood over a decade ago. And the reason I make documentaries and we're sitting in one of my warehouses where I do podcasting and 
the studios that I built. And like I was watching uh, Rachel Maddow the other day and she started a show. She did eight minutes about it, a typo that came out of the White House that he said, you know, he didn't say Norway, he said Normay. And she just kept going, Norway doesn't even exist. And this and the other. And I thought, there's plenty of stuff to get to, but this is a typo. Why so much time on the typo? But then I write books and I travel and I do stand up and I do is because I understood, I didn't know if there was going to be a place for me in a traditional Hollywood model doing a sitcom or, or, or whatever format. I knew I liked to speak my mind. I knew that my ideas did not comport with many other people in Hollywoods. And I suspected I'd be unable to earn a living if we got to where this is going, which is where we are now. So, but you can't cancel culture me. I own the building and you can't, you know, you can try, but I make the docs, I write the books, I make the films. I'm, I live outside of the Hollywood world and I, that was intentional. Adam Carolla. Now, something we did on Full Measure in 2016 was we devoted a lot of attention to media coverage and media mistakes when it came to the election and even after the election. So it only made sense that in 2020, we would likewise take a critical look at media coverage and polling and so on. So let me play for you a little bit of my report right after the election this past year. I call this report the big miss. Election day in the rearview mirror, you may be feeling deflated, elated, or left in limbo. Polls and pundits were way off the mark with several claims of cheating and fraud. Since 2016, we've been tracking the media's big miss and the pledges to self-correct, but we found in 2020, they failed. Democrat Joe Biden began the night with an eight-point lead in national polls over Donald Trump, the largest of any candidate on the eve of an election since Bill Clinton in 1996, according to the polling group 538. But after the media's big miss in 2016, America's trust in the predictive system was so shaken, a new avocation has emerged, measuring the odds that the odds are wrong. There could be a 2016-style polling error, and Biden would still win that election. There could be an even bigger polling error than there was in 2016, and then Biden might not win that election. The crisis in confidence when it comes to polling and pundits was never clearer than when Donald Trump first entered the picture in 2015. I am officially running for president of the United States. I think this is Donald Trump's biggest day, and he will be ignored from henceforth. Actually, I hope he will. And uh, we better be ready for the fact that he might be leading the Republican ticket next. <laughs> I know you don't believe that, but I want to go on. <laughs> I continue to believe Mr. Trump will not be president. In 2016, going into election night, 538 showed Hillary Clinton with a 71% chance of winning. Donald Trump, just 28%. Nearly all pollsters and analysts were in lockstep with the narrative that Trump had no path to victory. We were wrong, okay? The entire punditry industry, the entire polling industry, the entire analyst industry, and I want to use this opportunity to take my fair share of the blame. We were wrong. In the hangover and recovery after the big miss, 
the media promised to self-reflect and correct. Then it happened again. There's going to be a very slim mandate delivered to anybody who won because... Early on in election night 2020, even with the final tally still outstanding, one result was clear. Major polls and pundits once again proved not to be believed. The polls were extraordinarily wrong. The first forecast that fell apart was a Democrat blue wave. You begin to see the makings of a Democratic landslide if the political environment remains roughly the same in November as it is today. Because we keep talking about this blue wave, and it seems as if markets have baked in a Biden victory. We have seen in in various uh, betting markets uh, that uh, the the likelihood of of both a Biden win and a Democrats taking a Senate has uh, has increased materially. According to Real Clear Politics, the New York Times Siena College poll, rated an A plus pollster by 538, overestimated Biden's support by about four in North Carolina, nine in Ohio, six in Florida, and ten in Wisconsin and Iowa. So again, there will be questions going into the midterms and the next presidential election, I suppose as to whether there's self-correcting and how much we can really believe when it comes to the polls and the media. Speaking of which, I released my third book. It became a USA Today bestseller, and I did that around fall, around the election time, shortly afterwards. It's called Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. And something I did in the book, as well as on my program Full Measure, was go over some of the big media mistakes over the past couple of years in the era of Trump. Really notable mistakes that I'd never seen the likes of which before, at least in terms of frequency and sloppiness and how basic these errors were at formerly well-respected news organizations such as the New York Times and the Washington Post. So here's a bit of my segment going over a few of the notable media mistakes. The tone was set on President Trump's first official day in office. CNN claimed Nancy Sinatra was not happy about her father Frank Sinatra's song, My Way, being used at Trump's inauguration. Nancy Sinatra responded on Twitter, That's not true. I never said that. Why do you lie, CNN? Actually, I'm wishing him the best. Meantime, Time incorrectly reported that President Trump had removed the bust statue of Martin Luther King Jr. from the Oval Office. That false news went viral. In February 2017, TMZ reported Trump had changed the name Black History Month to African American History Month, implying the change was racist. In fact, it turns out Presidents Obama, George W. Bush, and Clinton all called Black History Month African American History Month. Also, the Washington Post reported on the cabinet battle over Trump's immigration order. The article was repeatedly updated to note that one of the reported meetings did not actually occur. A conference call did not happen as described in the article and actions attributed to Trump were actually carried out by his chief of staff. And the New York Times reported on supposed contacts between Trump campaign staff and senior Russian intelligence officials FBI Director James Comey later testified it was not true. That report by the New York Times was not true. Is that a fair statement? In the main, it was not true. 
credo che sia molto importante che la gente... In May, the BBC and the Guardian reported because Trump wasn't wearing headsets, he didn't bother to listen to the translation of a speech by Italy's prime minister. Per lo sviluppo dell'Africa... But Trump was wearing his earpiece in his right ear, as always, said the White House. In June 2017, NBC News reported that Russian President Putin said he had compromising information about Trump. Actually, Putin said the opposite. Do you have something damaging on our president? Well, this is just another load of nonsense. Where would we get this information from? CNN and ABC falsely reported that FBI Director Comey was going to refute Donald Trump's claim that Comey told Trump three times he wasn't under investigation. Instead, Comey confirmed Trump's claim under oath. It appears that you actually volunteered that assurance. Is that correct? That's correct. CNN retracted a report claiming Congress was investigating a Russian investment fund with ties to Trump officials. Newsweek reported Poland's first lady refused to shake Trump's hand, but later acknowledged she did. CNN edited a video to make it appear as though Trump impatiently dumped a box of fish food into the water in Japan. The full video showed Trump had simply followed the lead of Japan's prime minister. Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal falsely reported special counsel Robert Mueller had subpoenaed Trump's bank records. AP reported a new survey showed trust in the media had fallen during the Trump presidency, but the survey was actually conducted under President Obama. The New York Times said a hypothetical family's tax bill would rise nearly $4,000 under Trump's tax plan. It turns out their taxes would actually go down $43. The New York Times and CNN shared a story with photos of immigrant children in cages. It turns out the photos were from 2014 during the Obama administration. So you get the idea. That's one of the stories I think you would probably enjoy seeing the video of. I'll tell you at the end of this podcast an easy way to find all of these videos if you want to look at some of them, if they've intrigued you and you want to watch them in full. Next, I want to talk about, I thought, a really interesting assignment because I knew that as the press was understandably highlighting the worst spikes of coronavirus, the places like New York City where it was awful, I knew that there were many places that were either having no cases or very few cases, not suffering in the same way, but they were not being well represented on the news. And it's really neither here nor there in terms of making a point. It's just that life as it was taking place in many communities was never reflected on the news. So I set out to try to figure out where was the last place in this country to get its first case of coronavirus. Of course, it's hard to know scientifically exactly, but we did manage to trace one of the last places to record their first cases of coronavirus to Ekalaka, Montana, a very small community. I think when I first started looking at it, they had zero cases. And over the course of the next few weeks before I planned my trip there, they got some cases. But what's really interesting is it was many months after the initial shutdown. So they had the benefit of hindsight, I guess you could say, in seeing what had happened in other places that did shutdowns when they got coronavirus. They too had to do the shutdown, by the way, even though they had no cases back in the spring of 2020. 
But by the time they really got their cases of coronavirus, they had decided they were not going to shut down again. And the most interesting thing I learned when I was there is they didn't fare any worse. And in fact, I guess it could be argued they fared far better than many places for having not shut down schools, churches, or anything else. We were six months out from even having a close to our county, and we're locked down. Sheriff Neil Kittleman also just got over a bout with COVID-19. When I finally got here, then we could have shut down. And, and, but like I said, when I got here, people's already tired of the game. Well, they, you know, at first they, they locked us down like everybody else. When we didn't have a case, we, we went on and on for quite a while. We were even doing our services online entirely for a few weeks. At the First Baptist Church, Pastor Steve DeFord says after the spring closure, time passed, nobody got sick, and things eventually went back to normal. By the time coronavirus did rear its ugly head, they were determined to resist another shutdown. So unlike much of the rest of the country, they haven't missed a beat with in-person Sunday church. I wanted to emphasize that. Any other prayer requests here this morning? And would you say life is going on pretty much as it was? Yeah, it's going on kind of as, as, as usual in a way. For one thing, we live in an agricultural ranching community, and I'm sorry, the animals have to be fed. Life has to go on. You can't just shut down the supplies that are needed to maintain those ranches. Or, or you got to just keep moving, keep going. Perhaps the most interesting story is what's happened with Ekalaka schools. With schools shut down last spring, it was hard on everyone. Teachers and school employees made this video. When May came and they still didn't have a single case, they had their high school graduation ceremony. You may move your tassels. You are officially done with high school. Congratulations to the class of 2020 graduates. Uh, we didn't own. Stephen Eli is the high school principal and school superintendent. He moved here from Florida after the spring shutdown just in time to deliberate a fall closing when coronavirus finally arrived. The effect on, on the students here must have been dramatic in the spring because they were adamant. Um, we had a board meeting where there was talk about uh, not coming back to school for a few weeks. A majority of our, our students showed up and demanded that they be allowed to come to school. They didn't want to go home. They didn't want distance learning. They wanted to be at school. And they stood up and voiced their opinion in a, in a very, very adult way when some adults weren't being much adult about it. They were. And so school went forward in Ekalaka. Even with coronavirus in town, they played a full fall of team sports. When I had a chance to speak to our football team and to our, our girls volleyball team, I said, listen, you're blessed. Now, not everybody in this country is going to get to go out and play tonight. You guys get to. So very interesting to see. This wasn't the only place I visited where they didn't shut down the schools in the fall where they opened and yet suffered no spikes, 
no inordinate problems, and in fact, arguably fared better than other communities that did shut down. So it makes you wonder, are there a lot of questions to be asked about the course that we took in much of America? Was the one-size-fits-all approach that was taken in many places really the right thing and the safest thing to do for some communities? Well, we are not finished. A look at a few more fascinating stories I know you're going to love after another short break. We're back with a look at some of the most interesting and perhaps important reporting done in season six on full measure as we prepare to draw the season to a close. One of the really important stories, I think, was the investigation about false information that was surprisingly enough put out by the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, knowingly about the effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines for people who've already had coronavirus and are considered immune. And should they even be getting the vaccine at a time when the vaccines were in short supply and there were people who'd not had coronavirus who needed them far more? Well, it was Congressman Thomas Massey of Kentucky who found out CDC was distributing false information when he began his own research to find out should he get the vaccine since he'd already had coronavirus. And he found that CDC was saying the opposite of what studies actually showed. An award-winning scientist himself, Massey quickly found that vaccine studies showed no benefit to people who've had coronavirus. Vaccination didn't change their odds of getting reinfected. The controversy began when Massey noticed the CDC was claiming the exact opposite. CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices had just issued a high-profile report authored by 15 scientists. It wrongly claimed Pfizer's study proved the vaccine is highly effective or showed consistent high efficacy for people who'd already had coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. It says the exact opposite of what the data says. They're giving people the impression that this vaccine will save your life even or, or you know, save you from suffering even if you've already had the virus and recovered, which has not been demonstrated in either the Pfizer or the Moderna trial. The mystery deepened when Massey contacted CDC for an explanation. Massey says he was so alarmed by the misinformation, he decided to record the calls. On a December 16th call, CDC's Captain Amanda Cohn seemed to agree that people who've had coronavirus shouldn't rush to get vaccinated. People who've had disease, you know, given that there's limited doses right now, we are suggesting that those people wait. Right. That suggestion to wait hasn't always gotten out. Should I get the vaccine if I've already had COVID? Most experts say it's a good idea because they're not sure how protected you are after recovering. Our full measure investigation examined the database reporting illnesses after COVID vaccines. It shows numerous people are getting vaccinated even though they've already had the virus. Some experts say that's depriving others who need the vaccine most. Health officials in many states say they don't have enough vaccine. It's happening across the country. Promised doses not delivered. On the call, CDC's Dr. Cohn thanked Massey for flagging their mistaken claim that vaccines were proven to work for people who've had coronavirus. I think we read that thing so many times that, you know, we just skipped right over it. We know we can't be perfect. We know we're going to miss things. We will forever have to be known in our opposite. Eagle Eye Massey. Okay. Thank you. And they said, thank you for finding the mistake. Um, we're going to fix this. And I thought, well, okay, problem solved. This is how government works. 
but it didn't quite turn out that way. Two days later, the same Dr. Cohn who'd promised a fix joined other CDC doctors in repeating the false information. This time in an online session for medical professionals. They wrongly claimed studies show people who've had coronavirus do benefit from the vaccine. So, uh, Sarah Oliver, uh, what uh, should people who have had COVID-19 uh, be vaccinated? And should they be vaccinated now? Data from both clinical trials suggest that people with prior infection are still likely to benefit from vaccination. Then this past week, a full month after CDC promised to correct the false information, Massey found it was still on CDC's website. So again, this story to me says a lot about what's happened in the past year, why there's mistrust of information that public health officials put out, questions about why they would do so knowingly, even after flagged, even after acknowledging the mistake. What's the agenda? You know, how can public confidence be restored in these top officials when they're knowingly putting out bad information, provably bad information on some topics? How, how are they to be trusted on other information? So even when they are telling the truth and giving accurate information, the public becomes skeptical because of their actions, their own actions, meaning health officials, in the past. Now, the last story I'm going to choose to highlight for this podcast was another typical story for me in terms of asking a question and going to find out the answer with no preconceived notion of what the answer had to be. I was uh, on some shoots and found myself in South Dakota, and I thought, you know, remember the Sturgis motorcycle rally that took place at the height of the pandemic, and everybody was saying it was a super spreader event. And I wanted to know, okay, what really happened? And in the off-season, what was going on in Sturgis? This is a community that's pretty small, so they have this influx of hundreds of thousands of people for a fairly short period of time for their big, famous motorcycle rally, and then they go back to being a small town. Was the small town decimated after the rally ended because there were dire predictions of what was going to happen? And once again, I learned something fascinating that I had not seen reported at all. Perhaps some people reported it, but it certainly wasn't widely reported because I couldn't find it. But it all turned out to be false, the whole notion of Sturgis as a super spreader event. Take a listen. But of all the Sturgis rallies, there's never been one quite like last year's. 460,000 bikers descended upon the Black Hills of South Dakota at the height of the coronavirus pandemic, making it one of the year's most criticized events. Was there consideration given? Were people talking about, should we try to cancel it? Oh, Is absolutely. there a way to cancel yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. We, for about two and a half months, we held a, a wide variety of uh, town hall discussions. We also uh, held telephone uh, conferences with state health officials, with our, our local health officials here. Daniel Ainsley is the Sturgis city manager. He says they went forward with the rally for practical reasons. Our surveys during the rally showed that over 70% of the people were going to come here, whether or not we officially hosted the rally. So for a city of 7,000 people to host hundreds of thousands of people, there have to be preparations. Some quickly labeled the Sturgis motorcycle rally a super spreading event. One study claimed the event was responsible for more than 266,000 COVID-19 cases, 19% or nearly one in five of everyone reported in America at the time. It became pretty obvious that it was a narrative throughout the entire uh, nation and especially the news media that wanted to pin it on these people that were being utterly irresponsible. 
um, and you know they were denying the virus and everything else. I don't think anyone is denying that there was a virus here. Ainsley says rampant speculation was fueled by inaccurate reporting. Someone called you and said they were counted as a coronavirus case from Sturgis, but they didn't even attend? Yeah, we had one individual that uh, stated that they were just driving to Washington State and they were driving um, along I-90, which of course runs through our community. And so then they were counted as one of the uh, Sturgis uh, recipients, even though they didn't even stop in Sturgis. They just stopped a couple hundred miles to the east and a couple hundred miles to the west. but. According to their uh, state health official, apparently they were a Sturgis victim of the coronavirus. Did you say people were showing video, though, on the news sometimes oh, yeah, in absolutely. past years? Absolutely. There was, um, which to us was really disappointing because we have several live feed uh, cameras and we gave every media outlet uh, permission so that they could use that so that they could show current uh, images because the vast majority of the time on our streets, there would be, you know, 40 or 50 people on a block, but instead they were showing images from previous rallies. And a lot of times it was from the 75th rally, which was massive. And it would show our streets lined with thousands and thousands of people. I mean, it, it was images that were over five years old and people acted differently in 2015 than what they did in 2020. Once uh, a bar or restaurant started to even feel full, people weren't going in. I mean, people spent most of the time outdoors and they were out riding the hundreds and thousands of miles of amazing highways that we have uh, winding through canyons and mountains. Ainsley said the town was told models predicted Sturgis hospitals would be overwhelmed and up to 5% of people in town would die. But that never came to pass. Now, months after the August rally, it's widely acknowledged that there's no way to know for sure if anybody was infected at Sturgis, let alone who and how many. I think at the peak during the rally and even after the rally, about 5% of the beds were um, used for COVID. Based on statistics alone, scientific estimates indicate there should have been several hundred COVID deaths among the 460,000 Sturgis bikers, even if they hadn't gone to the rally. In the end, the media linked anywhere from one to about five fatalities to Sturgis, and none says Ainsley was scientifically traced. Think about this. It was called a super spreading event by many in the media and even some scientists. And there should have been statistically hundreds of COVID deaths, and they found at most one to five, and none of those were even scientifically proven. Is it possible that the Sturgis event had fewer COVID deaths than for people who didn't attend the Sturgis event? Well, it may seem unlikely, but now that CDC has acknowledged in recent months that it's almost impossible, they say, to get COVID-19 outside, it's so statistically rare that it may as well be non-existent, then it makes sense that the people who went to the Sturgis rally and largely remained outside would not have a high incidence or reported incidence of transmission and serious illnesses from COVID-19. And neither did the city folk. When the uh, rally was over, there was no spike among the residents left behind. 5% did not die. In fact, they were not able to trace any deaths among the residents, they say, to COVID-19 that occurred at the rally. So I think this is fascinating. And it, again, it leads us to ask the question about all of the misreporting, how the media was so much in lockstep on some of these matters early on and throughout the coronavirus pandemic, when a lot of the information turned out to be untrue or exaggerated or the opposite of what was said. 
I think it emphasizes the importance of seeking off-narrative information, listening to various viewpoints, even those which seem unpopular at the time, and making sure that we make up our own minds and decide for ourselves and remain open-minded as new evidence comes forward. Well, we could certainly go on, but what I'm going to do is recommend that if you like this kind of reporting and you're wondering what else you may have missed in the past year, if you were watching a lot of media that were covering the same stories over and over again and not really bringing new information to light, you can go to CherylAckison.com, my website. Even if you misspell my name, it should come up in one of the searches, CherylAckison.com. And if you click the Full Measure tab at the top, it will open up into a page where you can click Full Measure Cover Stories. And I've organized all of the cover stories by topic and date. And you can kind of binge watch and see what you've missed. And it'll kind of make you feel good again about the news, more like the news you used to think of as presenting, again, off-narrative information, listening to various viewpoints, and doing it sort of the old-fashioned way. Soon I will be embarking on a summer full of travel to start researching and shooting stories for upcoming season seven of Full Measure. I'm proud to announce that we will be back for a seventh season in September. I'm planning trips so far back to the border once again to see what's going on. I'll be going to the Texas border this time, probably in late summer, right before our first program. I'll be going to Colorado for some stories, Puerto Rico, the United Kingdom, back to Greece, to look at the refugee situation. A lot of this stuff impacts us in a way that is not always obvious at first blush, and that's probably why a lot of the news is not covering some of these international stories, but they become very important. We're covering those on full measure. And all summer long, while I am out shooting new information and new stories, we will be in reruns. I'm sure you didn't catch all the episodes throughout the year, so check it out or tell your friends to catch our Sunday show. You can See replays anytime at fullmeasure.news online. If you don't have a TV station near you, for your list of TV stations, you can go to that same place, CherylAckison.com, click the Full Measure tab, and there's a list by city and state. You can also catch us live or on demand on the free app STIRR, S-T-I-R-R, which also has cool movies and other free features, and you can even get your local news there, which is not easy to get online most any place else. So check out the app STIR. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to Full Measure After Hours. Leave a good review. Tell your friends. I will keep doing the podcast this summer. I hope you'll continue to listen. Do your own research. Make up your own mind. Think for yourself.